It's the third Thursday of the month, and we're off the bricks and on the air. You're listening to a poetry podcast from Brick Street Poetry. Tornado Alley. Tornado Alley is what weathermen nicknamed the strip of land I once called home. In Oklahoma, early spring was when the rivers rose from their beds, leaving foam and driftwood along their shores. They called the clouds to share a drink, go for a spin. Then dad would yell, it's time to go. Winds squalled through cedars bent double. Within the din, we ran, our heads turned down, pelted by rain. The cellar door was propped open to air the cave below, kerosene lamp, a stain-covered mattress, a moldy quilt, one chair. My dad would wave his hands. Bird shadows on the wall flew south until the storm was gone. That poem you just heard is from Linda Neal Rising, who is a native to Oklahoma and a member of the Western Cherokee Nation. Her work has been published in numerous journals, including the Southern Indiana Review, Nimrod, and the Comstock Review. Linda's poems and fiction have also been included in a number of anthologies, including And Know This Place, Poetry of Indiana, and Lost on Route 66, Tales of the Mother Road. She was named the winner of the 2012 Writer's Digest Poetry Award, and her chapbook, Rewriting Family History, was a finalist for the 2015 Oklahoma Book Award, and was named the winner of the 2015 Oklahoma Writers Federation Poetry Book Prize. Her work has also been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Linda, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Now, before we listen to some of your other poetry for today, could you tell the listeners um, a little bit about yourself and what inspires you and your poetry? Yes, well, I'm originally from Oklahoma. I um, am a, a member of the Western Cherokee Nation. I've lived in Indiana now since 1980. And I'm inspired by many things. Some people have said that I write poetry of witness. I believe that was a term that Sherry Wagner used in my blurb for my book, The Keeping. And when I think of poetry of witness, I many times think of poems that explore pain through words. And I know that most people, when they think of poetry of witness, they might think of poems about wars, for example, or the Holocaust. But I think that all people have personal tragedies, whether they're large or small. And many times I write about those. For example, in my book, The Keeping, I write a lot about growing up in Oklahoma. And uh, I tell the stories of the people that I knew there. So I might write about someone living in poverty in the foothills of the Ozarks. Or I might write about women living in a, a man's world or about the displacement of the Native Americans, because my family was displaced. They were removed from Tennessee to Oklahoma many years ago. I do tend to write narrative poems. I have some pieces that are lyrical, but for the most part, I write poems that are narrative in nature. 
Lovely. Do you see your poetry as having a role in education of people to uh, better understand the history and the lives of Native people? I definitely do. And I think that my next book even uh, explores that more. Uh, Most of the poems in the keeping which deal with this are more personal in nature. They are poems about, oh, the fact, for example, what I'm going to be reading today is about there were still boarding schools near where I grew up, and I'm going to be reading a poem about one of those. Or I have a personal poem in the keeping about the Trail of Tears, because my family actually came on the Trail of Tears from Tennessee to Oklahoma. In my next book, I think I go into more of the history involved because I'm telling stories from the viewpoint of other people, not just my own personal experience. But I do think it's important to educate people. I'm always amazed at how many people were not taught about, for example, the Trail of Tears, or as we sometimes say, the trail where they cried in school. And I I taught for many, many years, and I worked with the history teacher, and we did units over the Holocaust and the Trail of Tears, and we did those two together, and we would share the responsibilities, and we would talk about the history and the literature involved, but a lot of people don't have that experience. So yes, I hope that my poems do educate people about what happened in our country. Mm. Now, can we hear some of your poetry? Yes. This next poem is entitled, Number Seven and Other Heroes. My father went to school with Mickey Mantle, a fact I once used to score points with men. I wanted them to imagine my father, 16 and sable-haired, winding up, his biceps bulging like baseballs themselves, sailing a pitch across the plate where the mick waited, all blondness, buck-toothed and freckled, still shiny before he drank away his liver twice. I hope to paint an image of dark and light and just this once darkness triumphed. As the ball curves over the bag, Mickey twists his body, forces the swing, too filled with his need to leave these chat piles, to escape Oklahoma, to become the commerce comet, blazing his way across sports page headlines. He waits for the smack of leather on wood But here's instead Mr. Mustaine, principal slash ump, yelling, strike three. And for once, my father is the winner. My father went to school with Mickey Mantle, but he did not play baseball. At nine, when Mantle was just learning to hit, my father stood hunched over a cobbler's bench like a dark elf in a children's book, hammering home nails into boot soles. At 12, when Mickey was playing catch in a neighbor's backyard, 
My father was tossing freight into boxcars at the rail yard. At 14, while the Mick was already practicing his autograph, dad hauled bricks in a wheelbarrow, watching as the mason sculpted the mortar with flicking wrist, teaching my father his signature. And while my father stood on an army base in God-forsaken Alabama, holding his breath as a sergeant barked the names of those who would enter the arena in Korea, teams of young men who would sacrifice, whose names would be forgotten because they were not baseball heroes. Number seven, exempt from one draft, pumped his bad leg around major league bases, came in sliding and made it home safe. Wow, that's, um, that's a really powerful commentary on class, I would say. Is that what you wrote it to be about or is that? Um... Yes. My father went to school with Mickey Mantle for many years. He was, uh, Mickey was a year behind my father. But because my father lived in poverty, and I'm not sure that Mickey's family had a whole lot more, but they, he was not required to work the way my father was. Uh, he was able to pursue sports when my father could not. Uh, my father loved to tell the story of when Mickey was a freshman and he was a sophomore, they both went out for football. And Mickey was known for his speed. And my father loved to tell that he actually beat Mickey Mantle in races when they were in football together. <laughs> but uh, my father had to walk from where he lived, which was a long way from the school to get to practice. And he eventually had to drop out. He could not continue playing sports because he had to work and because of the transportation issue. But anyway, yes, it, it is a commentary on that. I see. And so in writing a poetry of witness that in this case is witnessing disparities between different classes. There isn't a lot of discussion of classes within American society. Are you hoping to bring awareness to that fact? It's it's usually something that we as Americans traditionally don't talk about. We're encouraged not to talk about it explicitly. Yes, I do. And, you know, I my parents both grew up in I wouldn't say poverty, but let's say they did not have very much. Um, my they both had very large families. My mother came from a farming family. My, my father came from a family of miners. I grew up in an area where they had lead and zinc mining. And it was a very dangerous, hazardous occupation. My grandfather was dead by the time he was 45. And it was from something very much like black lung, but they didn't call it that because they were not mining coal. They were mining lead and zinc. My mother's family, on the other hand, always seemed to have a little bit more because they lived on a farm where they could grow their own food and things. But even to this day, there is a great deal of poverty in Oklahoma. And I think it's not just in Oklahoma. I think there's a great deal of poverty throughout the US. And many times, 
I don't think people realize that or they don't want to see it. They always want to think it's in another country. I one time took an Amtrak from Illinois to New Orleans and we passed through parts of Mississippi that were just unbelievable to me that houses were like this in the US. I mean, they did not have doors, they did not have windows. There was no grass in the law, on the lawns. And um, the children would run and, and chase the train. And it, to me, it was just heart-wrenching. And I remember thinking at the time, I believe that's when President Clinton was running for president and he was taking a bus tour throughout the US. And I said, he needs to get off the bus and get on the train because it is amazing the poverty we have in the US and it just swept under the rug for the most part. Yeah. And um, would you like to read your next poem for us? Yes, this next one is the one that I mentioned earlier about the uh, boarding school that was near where I lived. Uh, many of the Indian boarding schools closed in the 1970s. This one did continue, I think, until 1980, but it had been started in the 1800s. And this is entitled, Like Wild Paints. Our fan bus shuttled past red buds and daffodils rambling foothills as we neared the state line, headed for the Seneca Indian School tall glowering building guarding the baseball field where their boys year-round boarders warmed up skin gleaming like copper kettles in sunlight we were indian too cherokee shawnee wyandotte but paler bleached by irish or scottish blood not like these boys Seminoles freighted from Florida swamps or Lakota hauled from the Black Hills and set here. They never spoke to us girls, giggling and flirting on the rickety bleachers or even smiled, eyes always averted, downcast, except when they stepped up to bat. Then they held their chins high warriors or gods or both watched as the ball hurled toward the plate then sent it orbiting into brambles beyond the fence before galloping the bases like wild paints their manes whipping behind them with one thought to run run beautiful what does this poem mean to you? This poem means a lot to me because of an experience that my family had with some of these boys. Uh, when I was in high school, my family uh, had been shopping with an aunt and uncle who were more like grandparents to me. And when we came home from shopping, we realized their home had been broken into. And the window had been taken off the, the kitchen and someone had been inside their home. They had taken all kinds of food, cookies. Uh, they had taken some change that had been lying around the house. 
So when my aunt called the sheriff and he came out, he said, we have three boys who are missing from the Seneca Indian School. And he said, they're runaways. And there was a railroad track very close to where my aunt and uncle lived. And they said, we think that they are trying to hop a train and run away. And eventually they did find them and they were hiding out by the railroad track. But that always stayed with me. And when uh, it bothered me that these boys were just wanting to go home. And so when I wrote this poem, that, that personal experience was playing in my mind, that idea of, of running to get away from this place that they did not consider home, where they were brought as boarding students. And I don't know what this particular school was like in the 1800s, but I do know that in many of these boarding schools, the students were treated very harshly. They were forced to have their hair cut. They were not allowed to speak their native languages. They were worked very hard as they were farmed out to the different families in the area as farmhands, or as, if, the, if they had girls at the school, they were farmed out as maids. So it was not a, a very good experience at all in the 1800s. Again, I don't know, for example, or I don't know specifically what Seneca Indian School was like in the 1800s. But I do know the boys there when I was in high school seemed very unhappy to be there. And this sort of school, this is the same type of institution as, say, um, Indian residential schools. The That's exactly what it schools. was. Yes. So there was also probably likely elements of assimilation going on where, you know, they were trying to strip the boys of... Um, their their native culture and trying to assimilate them into white culture exactly that's um just oh gosh that really oh that's just really awful would uh you like to read to us um your poem entitled johnny keen yes johnny keen waiting inside our blue and white Ford galaxy. My mother locked the doors just in time. Down the street came Johnny Keene, cousin to my father, but rarely claimed. He lapped one long leg in front of the other like a squirrel, tight roping a telephone wire. Talking to air, he twisted his head whirled as if fly-bitten before spotting us. Too slow with the crank windows, we shrank away as he leaned inside. They're after me again. Before we could ask who, FBI, CIA, Russians, he whispered. How beautiful he looked just then. His sleek hair ruffled crow-like, his eyes so black and wide, they held a raven's wings. No one's after you, Johnny Keen. Confused, he pulled back, walked away with rounded shoulders. Inside the car, silence replaced the madness and the beauty. 
this is about a cousin of my father's who went to war and he came back very changed and he was never the same. Um, and so he had many, many uh, psychological issues after that. And so this is just a poem about him. You mentioned earlier that oftentimes when we discuss personal hardship, it illuminates a, a wider reaching hardship. And is are these issues something that you found are uh, a part of a larger issue? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I guess in the poem, I should have mentioned the aspect of the military because I think that there are so many men and women who come back from the military and, and need help. And of course, this was written about something that happened in the 1960s when so many of these issues were, were not given the attention that they needed. Um, so I think it is very important for people to write about these things. Again, that idea of poetry as witness, you know, it just needs to be aired and so that something can happen to help these people. I think in today's world, there would have been places Johnny King could have gone for help. But at that time, there was nothing. And so he basically uh, moved back to his home with his mother. And I don't know that he had a very productive life at all. Now, before we go, would you mind reading us uh, one last poem? Yes. Uh, this is the poem that is the title poem for my book, The Keeping. I have heard there are those who hack away at grief, shearing sorrow over a lover's grave, but my grandmother was not one. Widowed after 50 years of marriage to a man who thought women had no need for swimming or driving or schooling, a man who took her to the hospital after the home birth of their fifth child, only when the bleeding could not be quelled, but then carried her back to the truck when the doctor said she should bear no more children. A man who let her lie in bed for a year, too weak to stand, while daughters no older than nine or 10 played mother to the younger ones, a man who crowed when the next three babies were boys. No, my grandmother never cut her hair, still colored braids coiled into a crown. And sometimes on Sundays, after taillights turned toward other homes, she would sit with me and pin her plates letting her hair tumble, fresh turned furrows down her back, the silver brush sparking tiny lightning strikes like flint against stone, untangling the hair my grandfather demanded she never cut. A man once told me that a woman only cuts her hair when she has given up. He was wrong. Sometimes 
it is in the keeping. And could you elaborate on your goals and your thought process behind it? Well, my grandfather was a larger than life individual. And he felt that uh, men should have total control over the lives of women. He uh, did not allow his wife or his daughters to learn to, as I said, swim, drive, anything. And that always bothered me because I loved him because he was my grandfather, but I totally disagreed with him uh, in his beliefs about women's rights. And so um, I've written a lot about women's rights in the last few years. One of the most wonderful experiences I have had in recent times was actually attending the Women's March in Washington, D.C., in 2017. And uh, that has gotten me to thinking even more about uh, women standing in our country and in the world. And so um, I guess it's just my um, outcry against the position that women have been put in for so many years. And yes, some of these things were from years and years ago, but still today, uh, women are not equal to men in the workplace, for example. They don't make the same pay as men. And so I just think that it's time for that to change. Uh, I think it's time for, for women to be considered equal to men, whether it be in the home or in the workplace. And so that's what that poem is all about. Um, I think you can love someone and totally disagree with his or her viewpoint. And that's the way I felt about my grandfather. I'm sure that that's um, a really common experience, even more common in the last four years or so. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just because I'm curious, I wasn't able to attend the um, Women's March in 2017. How was that experience? It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. We left at about nine o'clock in the evening from Evansville and boarded a bus. And uh, I had a friend named Jessica who went with me. We drove all night long and I was so excited. I did not sleep all night. We arrived in Washington at about 11 o'clock and we realized when we pulled up how large this is really going to be because we had special places where we had to park and we started walking. There were so many people, it really could not even be called a march. For many, many hours, we just had to stand in place and we could barely move. Finally, we did start marching a little, but it was every type of person imaginable there. Every um, nationality, religion, ethnicity, gender, it was just absolutely an incredible experience. And it was difficult not to cry because it was a very emotional experience. I didn't think anyone in my hometown of Posio would even know that I had gone. And I really didn't spread the word a whole lot because as you were saying about the last four years, it's really difficult because there are people who disagree so much on things. And uh, I walked by a camera and didn't even think about it 
And the next day I went to the bank and a, a man pointed at me and he said, I saw you on Lester Holt last night. Oh, no. <laughs> and I said, you saw me on Lester Holt? And he said, yes, you were marching, carrying a great big sign that said respect. And I said, oh my gosh. So I, the cat was out of the bag. Everybody knew then that I'd gone on the march, but it was just an absolutely incredible experience. And it was one I will never forget, but I did walk 10 miles that day. Oh, wow. Definitely getting in your steps for that day. Yes, I had my steps in. <laughs> <laughs> well, where would the listeners be able to find your poetry for purchase? Uh, the Keeping is available from Finishing Line Press, which is out of Georgetown, Kentucky, or on Amazon. And my chat book, Rewriting Family History, is also still available on Amazon. And then my uh, next book, Stone Roses, is being published by uh, Aldridge Press, and it will be available through Amazon and also through Aldridge Press. Perfect. Linda Neal Rising, it was absolutely lovely getting to talk to you today. And I wish you all the best in um, the next four years. Well, thank you, Catherine, so much. Time to pause for a natural moment with a bit of poetry focusing on our non-human world. Today's Natural Moment poem comes from Library of My Hands by Joseph Heidhouse. Wish You Were Here by Joseph Heidhouse. Wish you were here inside the baby teeth of my longing and desire, rattling and singing inside these words like pebbles in a rain stick. Wish you were here in the sound of the rain where I huddle against a stone in Belle Union, Indiana imagining you shadowing the lamplight in a room full of flowers and fire. Wish you were here in the library of my hands, the tiny words written in the creases of my palm, untoward crimson ache, as if language was not about lips or tongues or breath, but of what's held or imagined, rough wood of the barn, crystal light in the thin crack of glass, the way all things come together in an image folded secretly into the pages of a book, the way a poem breaks open the heart. Wish you were here by the sweet vermilion creek named for memory's blood or in the tint of the sun at dawn just below that crop of limestone and the tumble of water glistening white. You're here now making memory or remembering the sound of a car door opening, your mother's voice deep at the pool in the cascade below us, accepting the endless spill. Wish you were here inside the watch my father gave me, his father's watch, once held with a thumb in the pocket of a vest, once kept out of the light like a secret. Hear the sturdy tick 
that is my heart, the stout workings of the poet's art. Hear what my grandfather must have done. He pulled the watch and held it under the sun with secrets flower like these precious gifts we get from the dead. This program would not have been possible without the help of our creators and creatives. Our signature music is composed and performed by Iona Wagner. Off the Bricks appreciates the support of Indiana Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities who have made this podcast possible. We release new episodes of Off the Bricks on the third Thursday of each month, so keep an ear out for us. Thank you for joining us, poets and poetry lovers. Good poetry enriches our day and enlightens us about ourselves and the world. Join us again the third Thursday of the month as we bring you poetry off the bricks. <laughs>